Hey guys, it's your editor Jake here. Um, I'm not hosting the famous CFC with Rick Glanville and Gary Barone. I'm just here for a bit of a preface because this podcast is all about the music that surrounds Chelsea Football Club from the beginning to now. So here's the thing though. Music is a bit of a complicated thing when it comes to podcasting. Uh, rights, copyright, what you can and can't use, all of that is sort of up in the air. Nobody really has the perfect answer for you other than go get approval first if you can. Spoiler alert, we don't have access to every music label on earth, unfortunately, especially not some of these older ones. With that being said, we discussed some alternatives. Maybe I could make my own versions of the songs or a MIDI version, or I could find something that sounded sort of similar. But in the end, in the editing bay, I really just kind of fell in love with listening to Rick and Gary talk about the stories and then going to listen to the Spotify playlist that they created for you guys to hear all the songs. It felt like the best way to experience this episode. So what I recommend is listen to the full episode, hear the stories, and then go listen to the Spotify playlist that we've linked in the description. The playlist has pretty much all the songs that they spoke about and it's easy to jump through ones that you find familiar and find some things that you didn't know about or find familiar songs that you had no idea were related to Chelsea until you heard this episode. It's a fun episode. It's one of my favorites we've ever made. Rick and Gary absolutely knocked it out of the park and I loved it. I hope you will too. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast, where each episode explores a different story from the most fascinating history of Chelsea Football Club. I'm Gary Barone, and I'm joined as usual, if we can say usual after just two episodes, by club historian Rick Glanville, our football folklore fact checker. Try saying that after a few pints. Hiya Rick, have you recovered from that last minute winner at Palace yet? <laughs> from that, yeah, but not the long hilly walk back to your car. And the, and the three-hour drive. <laughs> yeah, and the rest through South London. I know you love South London. As you know, oh. I'm not so much of a fan. Yeah, I've, I've gone off it a bit. <laughs> That's why you moved, mate. Well, talking of late goals, and that might, might just crop up again in this episode, which is entitled Pre-Match Spins. We'll be looking at, or rather listening to, the songs that inspired the Chelsea players as they took to the pitch at Stamford Bridge over the years. Some enduring favourites, some one it wonders, and some, quite frankly, total duds. <laughs> but all part, of, all part <laughs> of a playlist that we've uploaded on Spotify, a link to the info page, all of which makes me sound rather high-tech. <laughs> well, we know you, Gary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we've been talking to Rick's old mate, Cole Chapman, who was stadium announcer and DJ from 1990 to 2019. He has some great insights and anecdotes that we'll drop in from time to time. Yeah, good bloke, Carl. And uh, yeah, he'd come up, he, he reminded me of a few things that I'd forgotten, actually. Yeah, but before we go on, what actually makes a good pre-match tune? For me, something that is uplifting motivating and enjoyed by the majority and mostly participating yeah i think that's important i think it has to have some it has to add to the ambience of the occasion i think it has to have some emotional value um maybe heritage or something stirring about it but it has to be familiar doesn't it, it has to be something that you're comfortable with that you recognize and uh, you feel he's going to put all your ducks in a row as the team heads out onto the pitch. Yeah, we, we're trying to say, you know, we've got history, we've got character, we've got 
legacy and you're up in a you're gonna have to fight a sword today to get a result that's what we want anyway yeah you want that yeah i suppose that's the thing we haven't mentioned is you want the opposition not necessarily to feel intimidated to feel that they are on foreign soil that they're not at home we're at home this is our fortress our castle and this is our anthem so let's take a look back and talk about how long this recorded music has been blasted out as a team take on the pitch at Stamford Bridge. And what happened before that? Was there just total silence? <laughs> yeah, just general chit-chat, very British, you know. And um, well, up to the 1950s, pre-match music was usually provided by brass bands, like marching bands who would walk around the, uh, the, the pitch. And um, Chelsea weren't that famous for having a, a band leader who'd throw his... What do you call it? The um, baton in the air. I think Arsenal used to claim yeah. that their one was famous. I remember seeing him at, uh, at Highbury. But we would have the Irish guards, the Grenadier guards from just down the road at Chelsea Barracks. And even in 1955, a bunch of teenagers from the Kvalaberg school band, they were from Stavanger, Norway, and they were touring England. And would you believe they were at the famous a 1-0 defeat of our title rivals, Wolves, in uh, April 1955, which was one of the uh, defining games in our complete history. So if anyone is listening out there in Norway who was actually in that band, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Exactly. Do you, do you think they played the kazoo, Gary? <laughs> I could just imagine that they would... Um, maybe still they became very famous musicians of, of their own, but... Uh, wouldn't it be great to hear from one? I was there and, it, you know, seeing that that um, handball given and the penalty scored by Sillett and yeah. Chelsea fans going mad, that made me a Chelsea fan. I've been one ever since. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Absolutely. Um, but, but then after that, after the kind of... The marching bands were there for special occasions every now and then, and of course, at Wembley and other places. But um, in the 50s, uh, this was the time of the teenagers, wasn't it? The birth of teenagers. And um, it was all, you know, rock and roll jukeboxes and coffee houses and everything like that. Uh, but it was vinyl. So uh, the Chelsea DJ by then, we didn't have a marching band much anymore. We usually played records and the match day programme would always have a little box saying, the records which you hear today are kindly supplied by Dawson Brothers of 16 Fulham High Street. So that was obviously... a probably sold sheet music and the vinyl that was played uh, inside the over the tannoy system which was terrible uh, but you could you could hear it tinny as it was and there was one tune that really from 1959 captured the Chelsea fans imagination and became a really I suppose the first uh, anthem of uh, at Stamford Bridge that was strolling by the comedy double act uh, Flan Flanagan and Allen uh, should we give it, it a little go? Do you want to give it a little go? Why not? All right. One, two, three. Strolling, just strolling in the cool of the evening air. Should we carry on or should we say? I don't envy the rich in their automobiles. For a motor car is phony. I'd rather have Shanks's pony. Yes. Stop there. We should explain Shanks's pony. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it basically, for those not from these shores, shanks is pony means walking on your own two feet. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I suppose, you know, of course, the mischievous ones in the shed, those naughty teenagers, changed the lyrics to a rather shag a pony. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they would, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> But that, the point was we were playing records, that's the point. We'd gone from, like, live yeah. music to playing vinyl, you know. We, we were trendsetters yet again, weren't we? Absolutely. But the first tune we know for certain that was played before the team came out on the pitch was in 64-65 by legendary ska singer Eric Monty Morris. Correct. And there's a piece in the programme um, from 6th of February 1965, I think you were there, Gary, I think you said. And uh, in my copy of the programme, um, we won 2-1, by the way. That's the most important bit. But there's a, there's a letter in the in-off-the-post column. There's a letter from someone called D.P. McEwen of Greenford who asks, would you please send me the number and make of Sammy's Dead? <laughs> it's Sammy Dead, not Sammy's Dead. <laughs> uh, the record played at the bridge before the players come out. And, um, well, DP was asking for the number and make. <laughs> it's not a car, mate. It's a, it's a record. <laughs> make. Oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Anyway, the answer, and this would have been Albert Sewell, good old Albert, the programme editor, lovely, lovely old fella. Um, he wrote, this is, the, this is the record our players brought back from last year's trip to the West Indies. We do not know if it is on general sale here, but for those of you who are interested, and we have received a number of inquiries from supporters, may like to write to, to the distributors, Pi Records, blah, blah, blah. Now, what was going on here was that in the 60s, we often used to tour the Caribbean. And um, so when the uh, Chelsea players heard Sammy dead being... Um, played everywhere when they were on a, they were, in May 1964, we did a tour of Barbados, Trinidad and Jamaica. And um, they would have heard that played everywhere. And so one of the players picked up a copy and uh, gave it to the person, the DJ at the time. And that's why it was played regularly. Now, why would the players have thought that the fans would want to listen to some Scar from Jamaica? Well, the reason is, that Chelsea, always fashionable, of course, had a lot of young fans in the shed who were mods. Now, mods is this was this, this cultural phenomenon of sharp-dressed young men who took drugs, rode scooters, and listened to soul and ska music. So it's like a sub youth subculture. And, um, and so they thought they're going to love this massive hit that's played everywhere in Jamaica. And uh, it didn't really... I don't think it was released in this country, so it wasn't a big hit in in England, but it was it was huge in Jamaica, and they brought it back, and it really caught fire at uh, at Chelsea. Really popular tune, lots of the old fans uh, still remember it, and um, and it was played before kickoff, as the program uh, tells us here. And the thing is, Monty Morris is still alive, actually, and he, he really was. Yeah, he was um, in '64. He was part of a trade delegation from Jamaica that went to the uh, the World Fair in in New York. So, like 1964, and he's still alive, and actually still in America. He lives in South Florida, and apparently he's flourishing 
in Florida. I'm delighted to hear that. Anyway, the following season, 65-66, where Pete and Dave's pre-match spin at the bridge for the first time. Now, I do actually remember them, mm. um, um, partly in the early 60s, but partly uh, a little bit later on. Yeah. And I remember that the, the fans would generally join in the songs, the good ones especially. Mm-hmm. And I remember some of them frantically trying to make up football lyrics to go <laughs> on top of them. Uh, I mean, even really imaginative, like the Kinks' dedicated follower of, of fashion, Oh, let me dedicated guess. Dedicated follower of, of Chelsea. Oh, I'd never <laughs> that must guess. Have taken a long time. <laughs> <laughs> some right, some Byron's and and words were in the shed in those days. Then and uh, the Beatles songs are always popular. Like um, yeah, if they they quite often played Yellow Submarine, and of course the fans would all sing Wheels Live in a Blue Submarine. Yes, again, highly imaginative. Yeah. At least they weren't all anti-Tottenham songs like they probably would be now. Well, that's <laughs> another matter, yourself, yeah. I think. But uh, the thing is, um, you mentioned Pete and Dave and their pre-match spin, which lots of older fans will remember at Stanford Bridge. Um, they were the match day DJs for years. And, um, you know, I, I, I met Pete and he was a lovely fella. And, um, you know, he um, what a lovely job he must have had. That tiny little box above the East Stand that they used to yeah. have the record player in, and that's that's where he was based. But um, they, I can remember, they must have, I think Pete must have been there, right, um, 80s, I would have thought, late 80s, mid to late 80s, something like yeah. that. Um, been on a long time. Yeah, and, but as, you know, so they carried on there for quite a long time. And then, but quite early into their career, uh they helped create a new pre-match anthem gary you know what it was well yes i think i can cue this up nicely in 1969 a new pre-match anthem was born liquidator by harry j all stars beautiful and i think we all know it's like it's can you play that on the kazoo rick I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> now, the thing is, Harry J's, Harry J all stars, Harry Johnson, that's the name of the producer, Harry J. And he was the mastermind behind it, and that distinctive intro. That, and that, that alone would raise a cheer. Fans on the terraces, when they heard that, dun, 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 would start cheering because they knew yeah. what was coming. Then yeah. there's that brilliant rolling bass line and the clipped guitar that follows the bass line. And then, of course, Winston Wright's stupendous organ melody over the top. And um, after a while, fans started clapping along to the chorus. I say chorus, it's an instrumental. Yeah. And chanting, you know, and going, Chelsea at the end. Yeah, and unfortunately, in recent years, adding "We Hate Tottenham" to it as well. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the, that is the problem, isn't it? It's horrible. It really it defiles it. It defiles the song, Rick. But also, I think it's making too much respect for Tottenham. Why sing about them when they're not? We're not even playing them. Couldn't couldn't agree more. And they're couldn't not worth more. it. No, exactly. The reason that we started playing, and lots of other clubs started started playing it. Uh, West Brom, Gillingham, Wolves. And gradually over the years, they stopped playing it. But the reason we were first is that Pete, of uh, Pete and Dave, um, his widow remembers rece- that him receiving a white label pre-release copy of the single from Trojan Records in uh, you know late 1969. That was the UK label that released 
liquidator and he played it and loved it so that's why he thought it would work on the terraces and it, it did it did and it still played um at Stamford Bridge now it's really I think the oldest thing at Stamford Bridge because it's it's older than yeast stand by about four years and um yeah. as I say it's an instrumental and it's the instrumental version of a song by Tony Scott called what am I to do which wasn't a hit um but liquidator itself was very successful reached number nine in the UK singles chart spent 18 weeks in the top 40 over Christmas and um you know it's 53 years that we've been playing that uh, as their startup music, as our walkout music. Amazing. That's 53 years. That is incredible. I, I Obviously it is now you've given mm. the dates, but because it's been always part of my life, it's hard to believe it can be 53 years. <laughs> That's astonishing. What do you think? I mean, there are two things. One, whenever I'm on a tube train and I hear the start of liquidator i think chelsea fan <laughs> and the other thing is it is one of those that is it's one of those tunes that's it transports you immediately to stanford bridge you immediately think of yourself you know waiting in anticipation and clapping the players out and yeah, expects yeah. and, and and sort of you know hoping that the opposition are opposition supporters are drowned out that's another thing about it something that the fans can participate in and drown out the away supporters that's another another good i'll tell you what though rick it's not the ideal ringtone if you're walking out of Millwall one night <laughs> <laughs> or you've got a you've got a snide ticket in the cop <laughs> oh, it's not good i can assure you <laughs> So in 1972, it was actually the squad who got in on the act to produce another long-standing matchday anthem, Blue is the Colour. Or did they, Rick? Listener, they didn't. <laughs> no, no, I'm, not, I'm, not having, no, I'm not having that. I saw, <laughs> I'm not having it, Rick. I saw them singing it in the TV studio. I saw it. It is true. It's a brilliant making of video. Uh, you know, they, they were on top of the pops, weren't they? The UK's foremost... Um, yeah. popular music uh, chart show. and um, But there is, there's a longer version that ITV filmed of the making of, and it shows the players, uh, about it, the process of recording, basically. And the studio they used was next to a North London school, and it was playtime as the players were walking walking through it so there's all these Arsenal fans taking the mick out of, out of Chelsea and going Arsenal Arsenal and Chelsea are rubbish and things like this and um Charlie Cook chief amongst them looks half cut like he's had a few liveners before he's not, you know, not he's, a great surprise if that's true though is it <laughs> I think you would had a gargle to loosen the vocal cords um and at the end of this video so they show them recording it quote unquote and at the end of this video a couple of the players get together and they're singing one or two saucy and terrace chants that the fans they'd learn from the fans um i'll try i must try and find the the link to that and put it up but but the point is gary i'm really sorry to say this mate but i know the song's producer larry page he ran Penny Farthing Records, who released the single. And he always tells me that the people who wrote and arranged it, Rod McQueen and Daniel Boone, who had lots of hits in their own, uh, under their own title, they not only played most of the instruments, but they multi-tracked their own voices to sound like the players. 
even well, Chopper Harris. <laughs> you, 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 you saddened me here, Rick. I've just, I'm sad. But, but all that said, it really is one of the most successful football team singles of all time. It got to number five in the charts. Yeah. And, and at that time, we were playing the 1972 League Cup final. Yeah, we don't talk about that. We lost. Um, but only Liverpool, Man United, the only clubs still gone higher in the charts than that. Yeah, with um, you know Anfield Rap, and I'm thinking it was, it was I can't remember what the Man United one was. But that's absolutely true. So people that say we've got no history and we're this small club, rubbish, absolute nonsense. And it is our anthem, but we're so generous. We give these things out to the world. So yeah. it's still played at every home game. And as I said, it is well, cup final appearances and stuff like that because it's our anthem. But it's also been copied loads of times. It was used for an SO Blue paraffin advertisement. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. And But also more recently, it's been copied by Vancouver Whitecaps. And would you believe the Proclaimers did a version of it for them called White is the Colour? Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd walk a long way not to hear that, I think. <laughs> yes. 500 um, miles? Yeah, something like that. Anyway, <laughs> in 1993, Glenn Hodder was appointed player manager. Yeah. But the revolution didn't just stop on the training ground. Oh, no. The Hodmeister, he wanted the <laughs> pride of Pasadena, Van Halen, and then the Scandi Dad Rockers Europe as walkout music. We might as well jump into Carl Chapman's... Sorry, might as well jump into Carl Chapman. See, when you're trying to tell a joke like that and you get it wrong, it just sounds a bit daft, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> Cole Chapman, Chelsea Stadium DJ from 1990 to 2019, remembering this musically troubled era. Sort of broadly, there was, again, there's this sort of um, message from on high approach, isn't there? So it's Glenn Hoddle, the manager, so, you know, who am I to argue, would like the club, to the team to run out to Van Halen jump. Um, and I just thought, you know, if that's what Glenn Hoddle wants... And, and do you know what? If we win every game and it becomes a real anthem for the team, then so be it. It, it was a bit cheesy. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that Glenn's a better football manager than the DJ. Um, I think, yeah, let, let the DJs work out what they need to do in the stadiums, um, stick to football management. I, I was, wasn't sad when it was retired, Rick. Did we play Final Countdown as well? Yeah, final, yeah, year at Final Count. I've got no idea whether Glenn, that was Glenn's idea as well, but it was sort of that mix between the two um, of, yeah, can you please play that? I remember actually even before that, Ken Bates telling me that he wanted a, a particular piece of music played. Um, I know. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? So um, Ken Bates said it, it was the four tops. For some reason, I've got. I've got. He said everybody sings it in the stadium, and I was like, "This was when the PA was so bad that you could only hear yeah. it in three stands, <laughs> and and in two of them, it was an of the other stand." What for top song was it? Was it? Can you remember? Was it appropriate? Was it? You know, I'm trying to think. What is it? Uh, there are loads of titles that are coming to them that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, it was a song that he 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 clearly he just liked the song. The song. He knew the song and he felt that it was one that the crowd would sing along to. And he mentioned it more on more than one occasion of, you should be playing that song. That, that's a really good song. And uh, as I say, I probably, I'll try to swerve it, if I'm honest. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got away with it. Got away with it. So Ken Bates, top four fetish, eh? 
<laughs> who'd have thought it hopefully the chairman was thinking more reach out and i'll be there rather than it's it's just the same old song it does make you wonder this idea that the chairman's coming down and badgering the dj to saying look it's my favorite song everyone's gonna love it you know i'll dance to it it's like some sort of wedding it's like an old man at a wedding uh, mind you carl did also reveal that uh, one of the post-match tunes that went down uh, and led balloon after the game was status quo rocking all over the world. Imagine if we had to put up with that after every last-minute winner. Yeah, that was a bit of an escape, really. But anyway, we had to lis- listen to a string of instantly forgettable Premier League anthems oh, over the year. Terrible. But the current one since 2020 by Dave Connolly of Molecular Sounds, um, that's probably the best of a bad lunch. Bad lunch, best of a bad bunch, isn't it? Best of a bad lunch, I think, is probably more accurate. That's probably better, yeah. <laughs> because it does repeat on you. Um, are you not forgetting Kasabian's disco influence, Fire? Remember that? That was used from 2010 to 2013. I have forgotten, actually. Yeah, and we might, we'll try, there's a YouTube clip of all the Premier League anthems that we'll try and put up on the info page. But yeah, I think the current one is probably one of the best. It has that proper anthemic quality to it. I used to say to people, um, it, straight after this was like when they first started playing this as an anthem as the players are doing the handshake I used to say to people as soon as it had finished right uh, hum that tune back to me and no one ever could do it it was so yeah. forgettable <laughs> it's, it's like in one ear literally out the other terrible terrible stuff terrible ideas anyway we're going back now to 2003 and Carl's light bulb moment to welcome in new Russian owner, owner Roman Abramovich who just bought the club and spent a fortune on brilliant, brilliant players. Now, here's Cole Chapman. So I think we all appreciate the, the sort of momentous state of stature of, tw- of 2003 when the club was sold to um, Mr Abramovich. And there was a fee- I, I felt that I had, I had a bit of a responsibility to, to sort of carry the fan feeling Um even walking into that first home game, I'd, I'd clearly made the decision that I was going to play something that was going to sort of try to excite the, the, the fans in relation to the new Russian owner. And I've been thinking about it for a while. And, and obviously back in the USSR by the Beatles was you know, in my mind somewhere. And then I've got no idea how I fell upon the, the sort of the folk version of Kalinka. And it was about nine and a half minutes long. When I, when I first started um, looking at it. And I thought, with the best will in the world, there's no football fans going to enjoy nine and a half minutes of Russian folk music. So I had some really rudimentary um, editing software um, and, and I went through the track and I tried to find about a minute or so, I think it was, so that it would be engaging and also would catch attention. So if you remember in the stadium, um, it would always start with a very long car. And the, the idea of that was so that everybody would go, hang on a second, you know, what, what's what's going on here then? And um, uh, on that Leicester game, you know, walking to the ground and there were people in Russian hats and some of the stalls around the ground were, were, were also selling sort of Russian hats. And, uh, and I was carrying the MP3 with me, um, uh, uh, thinking, you know, uh, am I going to go for it or not? And, and and sometimes you just have to go with that gut instinct. Um, and it was maybe 20 minutes, half an hour before kickoff. This was before 
you know, I was it was controlled and everything was down to the minute and second on, you know, different pieces being played on video, etc. So I had a, a much more of a free reign in, in 2003. And it just came to a point where I thought, you know, I've just got to go for it. Um, and I think I said something along the lines of, you know, here's a new anthem for us. And I turned it up so it would be really loud because it's important to catch people's attention when it's nice and loud and, and just hit the play button. Um, and it went out and I could hear it bouncing back around the stadium, um, which was quite full at the time. And I could hear that car and everybody just as one pretty much just thought, oh, yeah, I know this. This is a Russian song. This is really cool. And then it turned into more of a visual thing quite quickly. I don't know whether you remember, but people would put their arms out in front of them and they would they would. So they'd created their own dance routine. Uh, for for Kalinka and it was just a very short thing um, but it got such a fantastic reaction that that there were ringtones associated you know people wanted Kalinka as a ringtone on their phone Um, and yeah and and therefore it just had to be something that became anthemic and to be played every every home game over at Stamford Bridge. And then so everyone I can remember it very well joining in and obviously it was as you say it was a way of thanking Roman for buying all the players and you know, investing and, and 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 kind of embedding him in the culture of the club, so that he got to understand us a little bit. What was your understanding of his personal response to this being played at matches, home matches? So I'm not sure. Maybe the first time he heard it, he thought it's unusual. You know, West London, and they're playing a traditional Russian folk song. Um, and over time, I think obviously it sort of grew its own. Uh, grow, some of these things grow their own legs, don't they? H- hence, like the ringtone and, and things like that. And I think that it, it it just became. It got to a point where I was told that that piece of music is no longer, you know, isn't something that we would like to be played over at Stamford Bridge, which is fine. You know, if it, whether it was the owner or it was someone around the owner, someone had made the decision they didn't want that to be played. Um, I know it was definitely played after the embargo because it was played um, at finals. So there was there was fi- at least one final where it was played, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, good o, nothing to do with me. I'm not going to get re- I'm not going to get made responsible for this one. But, and the, yeah, and so it just sort of faded a little bit, um, and then no one was asking for it, so it just it, we just dropped it um, and then moved on to other things. I wonder what Carl would have thought to welcome Todd and Co. Some Springsteen about some Woody Guthrie. This land is your land. <laughs> well, it is his land now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this club is your club, or this club is my club. <laughs> but um, well, maybe something by John Williams, even the comp- the American composer. And why do I say that? Why do, do you, you know, say that? Go? No, you don't know. Okay, it's because of the pre-match handshake music for Chelsea and Real Madrid at the 1998 Super Cup game. Because right. it's really strange now. This is this, ha- this is this is on YouTube again, but instead of they're all lining up, so all these great players, Chelsea and Real Madrid, and instead of the UEFA anthem ringing around the Monaco Stadium where the Super Cup final was held, they played the throne room music from Star Wars. You know, Star Wars: A New Hope. Absolutely weird. Another oddity that we uh, we almost had to put up with that we didn't was. The mental health charity in the UK called Mencap back in 1969 
They got a band called The Complex to record this two orchestral marching songs for the top two teams in London, Chelsea and Arsenal. So the Chelsea March and the Arsenal March, which they released as a, a single. I've got a copy of it. And honestly, it is absolutely terrible. And um, <laughs> I just, I'm really sorry that my um, vinyl digitising software isn't working at the moment because of a software upgrade. Otherwise, I would impose it all on you and how, <laughs> how terrible it is but it's such a rare thing i get offers for it all the time on discogs people wanting to buy it and it's really sh- a shame because the bloke who arranged it Derek wadsworth is a great british jazz musician but you know that's the that's the way these things are he was obviously paid for that job and it turned out terribly anyway that was neither of those were played at arsenal or at chelsea in 1969 okay well coming towards the end now so maybe we can chuck in some incidental music usually played at the end of games. So yeah. here's Carl again on Madness One Step Beyond and Three Little Birds by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Oh, wow. I've nearly destroyed... Well, I've not, but I think the fans have nearly destroyed the stadium on many occasions, jumping up and down um, to One Step Beyond. The I, I can't recall the, the actual game, um, but it was a game where that was clearly very important. You know, you know I'm a fan. Uh, a long time before I was stadium announcer of Stanford Bridge, I was overwatching the team. So I, I cheered every goal and every time there was a 90th minute goal, it was always that, you know, and, and if we beat Liverpool or Man City or whoever, it was always felt a bit more special. And um, the, the game was won with one of those sort of last minute things. And I just thought, we've just got to celebrate. We've got to lift the roof off this. And the the start piece on one step beyond, and of course, Suggs is a big Madness fan. Uh, sorry, uh, Suggs is a big Chelsea fan. So having that connection and also then turning one step beyond up, beyond up to about 11, and everybody in the stadium knows it. It's just one of those things. And it gives a chance for the fans, because it's got a relatively long intro, a chance for the fans to acknowledge and engage in the first bit you know, hey, you, and then as it breaks and hits into the dance routine, you know, 44,000 people all doing the same dance, obviously excluding away fans, and from where from where my position was, you could see the, the, the roof of the stadium bouncing up and down. It was just phenomenal. It, it was a great thing, and, um, yeah, and, and that's how One Step Beyond came about. It, I always like to use it really sparingly because, therefore, it sort of it retained that sort of specialness of I was there the night of them, we won that Champions League game and we had One Step Beyond rather than it just being a, a, used, all, a used all the time. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think I did that. That is precious, doesn't it, if you use it sparingly? Yeah, yeah. They, they, you know, people just... Oh, you're going to go to the game and you're going to listen to One Step Beyond if you win one nil in a second round cup tie. It doesn't. It doesn't have that same. Particularly as a fan, you know when it's special. You you know when that's a that's a key moment. Like 2012 run up to the Munich final, we knew what was important. Um, I think it was the Nap. Was it the Napoli game that we went to extra time? And I don't know whether you remember, but. There's, a, there's always a break between the end of the game and, the, and the, the extra time. And I played Three Little Birds. You know the song, Don't Worry About a Thing, Every Little Thing's Going to Be All Right. And I played that deliberately, um, hoping that it would turn out all right. But it was just that sentiment of 
everybody needed to sing don't worry it's everything's going to be all right and clearly it was um and yeah i've played that very little since but that particular moment just felt like it needed that track before we close we can't leave out one of the greatest pre-match build-up anthems of all time the champions league anthem rick oh absolutely amazing um i'm getting chills just thinking about it they're multiplying um, yeah, it was created by Tony Britton in 1992, and it's one of those evocative spine tinglers that you really need just before kickoff. Um, and as the two-time winners of the competition, we love it so much, and we have such incredible memories. How many we, times you've won it, Rick? Twice, eh? We, we've won it twice. And have have any other London clubs won it? You know what? I don't think we make enough of that. We definitely <laughs> won it twice, haven't we? We have. And we're the world oh, champions. I don't know if you know. Um, the actual song, the Champions League, where they stand in the middle and they wave the that ball and stuff like that for all their for all their worth, is based on a lovely piece of coronation music actually called Zadok the Priest by George Friedrich Handel. You know the German mm-hmm. who lived just three miles away from the bridge, though obviously a century or two before the stadium actually existed. Just wonderful, all that pre-match music. I can't wait now for the next home match. I know it's whetted our appetite. It has indeed. Well, thank you to Cole Chapman for sharing your stories. We'd love researching this episode. And as we said before, there's a link to the Spotify playlist of the tunes mentioned on the info page. In a future pod, we'll trace the musical origins of the Chelsea fans' terrace chants. <laughs> You've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Glanville. If you liked it, please tell your friends and family, rate us and subscribe on whichever app you're using and help promote Chelsea heritage. In the meantime... Play up, pensioners. See ya. See ya.